0: Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting September 9th, 2016, we talk again with Pakistani lawyer, activist, and columnist Rafi Zakaria. About her country and her 2015 Beacon Press book about it. Upstairs Wife An Intimate History of Pakistan, subjects of a recent talking policy feature with her for the World Policy blog. We'll also point out top features in the WPJ summer issue. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now, this. of cheery, colorfully garbed, flag-waving women on the Good Morning Pakistan TV show's mid-August celebration of Independence Day gave little hint of the country's painful, often bloody divisions across ethnic, religious, geographic, gender, and military civilian lines. Just days earlier, indeed, Taliban extremists ramped up their insurgency in the province of Balochistan, bombing a hospital where dozens of lawyers were mourning a colleague and leaving 70 people dead. That drew government allegations of support for the terrorism from India across the border and further escalated renewed tension over conflicting claims to Kashmir by the two nuclear neighbors. Meanwhile, urbanization is bringing more Pakistani women into the workforce, political awareness and activism, especially on social media. Conversely, however, formal opposition to polygamy is decreasing, while honor crimes are on the rise most notably the recent fatal strangling of a sexy social media star by her own younger brother. The many contradictions and conflicts in Pakistan and what's to come are addressed in a recent world policy journal talking policy feature with Pakistani attorney, advocate, and newspaper columnist Rafia Zakaria, whose recent book is Upstairs Wife, An Intimate History of Pakistan. And we went over it all recently for this podcast. Rafia Zakaria, welcome back to World Policy on Air.
1: It's such a pleasure to be back on. Thank you so much.
0: You've said that you wanted to, quote, reclaim the story of Pakistan for its women with your latest book. So to start by telling us why and how the term upstairs wife relates.
1: In terms of the, the broader perspective, I had two aims with this book. In terms of the reclamation of history, um, and this is obviously not unique to Pakistan, but we are a post-colonial state. We, you know, gained our independence from the British in 1947. Um, And so history is a particularly um, contentious point with us. Uh, As you mentioned in your introduction, uh, almost the entirety of our existence has been defined with tensions with India Um, more recently we have a war on the other side of the border uh, with Afghanistan because of the U.S. presence there so, um, you know, history has been both at the core of our existence, but also the basis of a lot of conflict in Pakistan. By reclaiming history, what I meant was that, um, you know, in a, in a relatively young country like Pakistan, uh, the issue of belonging and who really belongs and who really is Pakistani and who really um, gets to define what pakistan is is has been at the root of a lot of conflict um a lot of bloodshed even um and i and i always obviously felt that the perspectives of pakistani women at, at least ordinary pakistani women like my mother uh my grandmother's aunts uh just you know, my friends myself um were not a part of the discourse and um so I wanted to tell the story of Pakistan as best as I could in the voices of its women um because my hope was then is that um the girls who would read this book in Pakistan, or other people would read it in other parts of the world, um, would know it through a lens that has been largely sidelined in Pakistani history.
0: Though you read many histories of your country growing up, you admit, quote, there were things you did not know. What did you learn only after your interviews and research?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, I... I, I don't think I really understood um the richness of Pakistan's you know feminist and um the the the, the courage and power of women uh, who both took part in the fight for Pakistan and that have since been uh instrumental in the political direction that Pakistan has taken so you know, I I was I, I wasn't sure how that fit in, um, and 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 so I you know it it, it was in a sense uh, looking back and understanding and knowing aspects of Pakistan that I had never uh, that I had never understood, and and I mean uh, on another level, I guess it's a very you know it's a very simple desire. Like this was, I guess, the sort of book at least, you know, in terms of the historical portion that I wished I had had as a young Pakistani girl growing up in Karachi. Um, you know, we uh, there was no representation of that sort of ordinary middle-class life um, that I could see in history or in literature at the time. You write specifically about the genesis of the Muslim
0: Family Law Ordinance and uh, an effort to ban polygamy in Pakistan. Talk more about what you learned about that and how it figures in the larger history.
1: You know, as a, as a lawyer, of course, I, I knew, and a columnist, I knew about the law, the Muslim Family Law Ordinance, which, you know, governs who, um, basically marriage, right? So how you get divorced, what the procedure is, what the conditions are. And um, I knew, I, I knew obviously, and uh, continue. You know, this is the same situation now. That this is uh, was a contested issue in Pakistan. Uh, what I wasn't, what I didn't know was, you know, the human drama that surrounded the genesis of this law. So, for instance, you know this law, uh, and and also just the fact that it was it it transcended even Pakistani borders. I mean, the story, as I tell it in the book, is essentially that one of the one of the prime ministers, well, at the time he was foreign minister, but prime minister of Pakistan, um, you know, wanted to ha- marry another woman. He wanted to get a second wife, and it was his spurned first wife that collected. Basically, all the the daughters and wives of important people in Pakistan and said that we are going to, uh, you know, ban polygamy in Pakistan because of this very personal uh, affront that she had had and because of what she had gone through. Um, And, of course, the the woman he wanted to marry was actually an American woman that he had met while he was posted in Washington, D.C., um that was going to be his second wife. And um so it, it it was stories like that. Um and then again of course the actual law, I mean they they ended up not being able to ban polygamy at all. But they were able to Um, you know, sort of institutionalize and create some buffers that would retain women's independence so, so, you know, women could a woman could, a wife could ask for a divorce Um, a divorce could not just be pronounced verbally as has been kind of the religio-cultural custom in Pakistan that if you say I divorce you, a husband says I divorce you three times, that's a divorce so they try to amend that and and put in legal, say Guards that would protect the rights of women, uh, but they couldn't ban polygamy. And the reason that's important, and the reason um, I, you know, I, I went to such lengths in the book, is that what happened in the '60s or in in the late '50s when when this controversy was going on, was this idea that okay, we've created this Islamic republic, but how is it going to be different from a country that's not Islamic, which, i.e., India. So, under a secular India, polygamy was banned. And so the argument. Very cleverly, and and this was not at the time an argument that you know a religious cleric was putting up, or I mean, this was a very uh, you know uh, Bogra, Prime Minister Bogra was a very liberal um, man, uh, but you know he he you know one of the sort of perks of becoming uh, perks of creating Pakistan was for I guess for men was supposed to be that oh okay well polygamy is going to be legal again because. Because it's you know um, that's that's uh, and the Islamic one of the Islamic permissions that allegedly is 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 given to men. Now I contest you know even even that. I don't think that I think that the verse in the Quran and I write about this in the book um, is interpreted very uh, cleverly and all entirely by men to mean uh, that you can have multiple wives, but it does not. Um, uh, not, well, first of all, it doesn't give blanket permission. Second of all, it sets an impossible condition. It says you have to do perfect justice between wives. And, and, and you know, as we know from the other hermeneutics of the Quran, the perfect justice by human beings is impossible. So the book came out of that. I wanted to show this relationship, the relationship between My aunt and uncle, my uncle who went and, you know, married another woman uh, and, you know, moved my aunt upstairs, and hence the upstairs wife, and, and moved his new wife downstairs to show in reality how impossible perfect justice is.
0: You talked about actions in the 50s, 60s. There was also a resistance at a university in 1971. Talk about that. Resistance by women.
1: Yes, and this, uh, you know, I, and in terms of reclamation of history, I think um, this is particularly important because one of the things that I grew up in, obviously in Karachi, which is in uh, West Pakistan, and I and I was born long after um, the succession of of East Pakistan, which is now Bangladesh. So I never, I had no memory of of what it was you know what pakistan was when when it included bangladesh so one of the things i wanted to do was to go back and try to understand that conflict and how difficult and horrible it had been and and how and why uh bangladesh chose to succeed and one of the most sort of moving stories that i came across was again of this women's dorm in Dhaka University in uh, in 19, which which you know was was one was the center of of the successionist movement uh in Bangladesh and um and and the the reason the story was so riveting was that um, you know when uh, it was just about time that the Pakistani military was trying to take over all the places where secessionists were kind of gathering and plotting um, plotting their independence. From Pakistan, and one of these places was Dhaka University, and the women were uh, particularly—you know—there, there there were a lot of women that were very active in their independence movement. But on the, in the particular story, this hall called Rukia Hall uh, was emptied out. But because uh, the women were afraid that the Pakistani military was going to come and do a raid, they did do a raid, uh, but th- there was no one in the dorm. What the sort of uh, principal uh, or the, you know, uh, director of, that, of the university or of, of that particular dorm did was take the girls who were left behind into her house. That was not far uh, from the dorm itself, and then that was um, you know that was also raided uh by the Pakistani military and so I talk about the you know how she pro- tried to protect these girls what a what a contentious time it was, and then also just of the incredible shame um that the Pakistani military felt uh following the loss of East Pakistan. And the kind of larger depression of, 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 the fact that you know we created this country, and so soon after it was created, it was already um, hacked up, um, you know, um, and and then of course also the geographical impossibility, uh, of, of, of of that formulation of Pakistan in which the british were very complicit i mean you know they just wanted to get out of india so they applied this formula that will give all the muslim parts to pakistan and then you know the application of that formula is in a sense absurd right because they created a country where you know west pakistan most of its landmass was on one side of india And then a good portion of the population mass was on the other side of India. And India was very, very hostile in the middle.
0: Going back to the issue of marriage, you said that they weren't able to fully uh, make polygamy illegal. And then we see as uh, the Islamic faith becomes stronger and stronger and more dominant, uh, you say that uh, polygamy is is having uh, something of a resurgence. Talk about that. And whether you see any reform of marriage laws in the near future or what it would take uh, to accomplish your goals there.
1: My goals are simply that the new generation of Pakistani women should have a voice, uh, you know, a discernible voice in the direction of Pakistan and you know that is a lot more complicated and requires a lot more tenacity and persistence i think than 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 you would imagine and um in terms of the marriage laws yeah i mean they couldn't ban polygamy um i obviously don't have there are no statistics um, kept on, um, you know, on the number of people that are in polygamous marriages, and that actually is one of the the, the problems as well, because uh, you know there's a reticence to register marriages, particularly when they're second or third uh, marriages, and so we don't really have numbers. The reason why I think or I say there's a resurgence is that. I see uh you know, within Pakistani popular culture, uh particularly the the television soaps that or we call them television dramas, uh that are are being ver you know, are, are are produced and aired and are uh, a very sort of significant part of the cultural discourse of the country, um repeatedly uh show Uh, polygamous marriages and the drama within polygamous marriages Um, and in some cases they not only show them but they present them as a solution um, or like almost like a magnanimous Thing that men can do um, to support more women and to sort of um, reduce the problem of of destitution or, um, you know, women being in, in, in difficult and desperate situations. And that, to me, is particularly alarming because there are... You know, if 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 you want to support women being empowered and women live, living fulfilling lives, uh, you can support um, anti-harassment laws. You can support increased employment for women. There are a million ways in which you can do that um, that have nothing to do with them sort of being forced into these relationships with men because that's the only way they can, you know, be protected from an otherwise very uh, predatory society that doesn't approve of women living by themselves, or doesn't approve of women not having male guardians. So that is particularly troubling to me. I don't like the pro- that propagation. I don't think that. I mean, you know, people because these dramas are considered fictive, people quite kind of just, you know, they, they're not taken seriously in the sense that, oh, is this really happening? Because all well, it's just a story. But it's not just a story. Um, you know, I, I have definitely had friends and relatives uh, in in my generation who have who are in polygamous relationships, and um, and I think that they are they. Absolutely and undoubtedly, shortchange women in so many different ways, and the emotional devastation of that arrangement is is something that you know I I, I think I try try to show in in the upstairs wife.
0: In a recent newspaper commentary about the honor killing of uh, provocative Pakistani social media celebrity uh, Kandil Baloch's murder, you call it a reaction to, quote, power being displaced from the realm of men into the hands of women on social media. Say more about how the Internet is blurring the lines between uh, the the genders uh, and the, the, the cultures in Pakistan
1: well i mean i think one of the the very revolutionary um things that the internet has enabled and we do at least in the urban areas have a uh, pretty uh, you know good good penetration of of the internet um in you know in that people have more even more so uh people have uh Twitter and Facebook on their phones, and we do we have actually a very very uh good penetration of cell phone um ownership and usage in Pakistan and available to women and you know if you've kind of kept uh, the half if half the, of the population has been sort of- you know relegated to to the private sphere or not you know not prov- been been welcomed into the public sphere, let me put it that way, because there are a lot of women in the public sphere now in Pakistan. But they face tremendous amounts of harassment. Uh, you have to be so tough um, to be a Pakistani women, woman. Uh, and be in public spaces in Pakistan, and so I am always, you know, I, I'm always awed in a, in a way by how tough women are because they have to uh, take public transport, they have to work in these public professions. Um, so, so I mean, I think that that those those are factors that are changing the society. The reason Kandil Baloch, and you know, I mean, in a sense, I think she was. She represented this emergent i mean perhaps not so much in this in in the aspect of being a sexual provocateur, but in the aspect that she was trying to expose uh you know for instance, how men behave when there aren't when they don't think anyone's watching so you know, it's, in a sense, um, it's this uh, dichotomy where, where people, you know, including other men, don't really believe how women get harassed uh, because they don't see it. They're men. And one thing that social media has done is allowed, the, is allowed women to, to talk about that and to expose that and to trying to expose the men. So I think that sort of in a way, it's almost like a weaponization of Pakistani women because now they have this tool that allows them not only to connect and participate in public discourse, as something that you know they um, that they couldn't with as much um, you know ease before, uh, but also it it gives them uh, you know it, in, it it gives them potentially this tool by which they can they can record, uh, for instance, a boss that's harassing them. Uh, and and trying to expose them. Of course, the the ultimate end of what happened to Kandil is particularly disturbing, right? Because she was killed for that. But once you have that recipe out in you know once once it exists, you can no longer wish it out of existence. And so, you know, I'm very hopeful that this is a means via which, and I I actually promote it, I promote it in my columns, I promote it otherwise, as, 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 as you know, these social media platforms are venues via which women can expose these men who think that they are unassailable and untouchable
0: another theme in your book is migration explain the importance of migration in Pakistan how the identity of uh, muhajirs refugees or immigrants has affected ethnic politics in the country
1: Um, well I mean I I come from a muhajir family Uh, you know both sides of my you know my father and my mother's family uh, migrated uh, to, to Pakistan and so the reason why that's central is because I you know, when I was growing up, I had no idea what migration involved. I was born in uh, Karachi. But at the same time, because I was born to migrants, um, you know, I was considered um, within the political culture of, of Pakistan at the time as less of, a, um, you know, less of a person that belonged less to Sindh or to Karachi than uh, people whose families had been there for generations. And I think the central issue that 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 story of migration and all stories of migration involve is, is this idea of what migrants want versus what they get. I think that if you've been a migrant, and this is, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, if it's from India to Pakistan or, or from, you know, Texas to New York, um, if you've been a migrant, you understand that uh, what you envision your life to be, where you're going Um you, you know it's very difficult to compare that to the reality of what your life is once you get there. There's a big disjunct between those things because by definition, migrants have to have to sort of um, have these dreams because it takes so much to tear yourself away from what's familiar and what you love and what you know and seek a future somewhere else. So you have to have these dreams. But at the same time, once you get there, and definitely, you know, my family's story is the story of that. Once you get there, um, those same dreams can um, poison your life because your reality is, is never going to be as, as beautiful or, uh, you know, or, or, or fulfill in any sort of entirety the vision that you had. Um, that 's just the nature of life and the nature of reality, so you know the, these kind of very abstract thoughts are are present in the reality of Karachi, and I wanted to take people into that aspect of karachi 's realities that this was a city that grew from you know like under a hundred thousand to over half a million in a span of six months after partition.
0: I was really interested in what you wrote, that eventually, when enough generations are born in Karachi or any place, they will come together because it has become their common birthplace. On one hand, they'll lose their memory of, uh, of the transition, uh, but uh, that, that causes both a, a reduction in conflicts, but also a, a, a sort of loss of place, of identity. Talk a little about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think loss of place is a very apt term to describe that. I mean, you can see in the Karachi that exists now that the migration-based political identity of Muhajir is increasingly um, less determinative, uh, you know, and, and, and politics in, in Karachi are changing because of that. The political party that was, you know, based on, on migrant rights is now um, struggling. And uh, and there is a kind of, a loss of places is a great, great phrase. Um, I would also describe it as a loss of direction, because we, what do you put within that vacuum? Um, and because Pakistan relied so centrally on ethnic politics, and then as you have these sorts of um you know dilutions of ethnicity that inevitably happen and should happen in in the face of other demographic changes like urbanization It becomes a question of, you know, who are we and how are we going to organize ourselves politically? And I think that one of the, uh, uh, that is the flux that uh, at least Karachi is in today, is that who is going to represent Karachi now, Um, who is going to represent its very distinctive culture, Um, and, and who is going to fill that vacuum left by... Ethnic politics. I mean, you know, the the sort of more darker prognosis is that it's going to be Islamist politics, because you know, anytime you have these ethnicities get diluted, um, you know, their their Islamist politics comes in to try and pre- present itself as like the the unifying glue that's going to keep it all together um and but, but that is not yet a question that has been answered i don't think that the direction is is quite uh discernible at this point and and I would even argue that that's one of the reasons why you see um, such a high level of conflict and contestation, whether it's you know, among uh, whether it's on women's rights, whether it's on the role of religion in the public sphere, whether it's on the cultural representation of things like polygamy, um, all of those are very, very contested issues, um, and and it, and the, and and they're they're a reflection of the fact that you have this young. Uh, political, you know, people who, have, who are relatively young and who are trying to find a political identity and have not quite decided yet what that's going to be.
0: A final question relating to Pakistani politics. The Bhutto family plays a large role in the upstairs wife, particularly Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto, who was, uh, to quote you, the freest woman you knew. Uh, say more about her and what you think the future holds for the family
1: in politics. The most significant portion of Benazir Bhutto's life that was interesting to me, Um, you know, I mean, of course, there's her her political identity that's very well known, but I was interested in her as a woman because she was the only woman that I saw inhabiting public space uh, in a very visible way. In Pakistan and so it is her personal life and her personal choices that intrigued me Um, You know growing up and and then looking back. I mean, I, I I recall for instance in the book when she got married and the fact that how you know, how kind of Disappointed I felt in the fact that she got married and that she had an arranged marriage because that was you know definitely the path that was presented or was being presented to me even though I was a little girl at that point as you know this is what all women have to do eventually and so it also became this is what all women have to do eventually including even Benazir Bhutto has to do this she has to get you know have an arranged marriage get married have children Um, and uh, so you know I I, I felt that oh gosh she's she can do so much why does she have to do this because you you know, I was, uh, you know, I want sort of even at that age as railing against this idea that you have to do that if you're female. Um, so I think that I take that thread through the book uh, because of that, both in my changing understanding of what she must have gone through as a female politician, um, and then also my sense of betrayal when I felt um, that her choices were not the choices that I wanted her to make. Um, and I think in an odd sort of way, very different sort of way. It is uh, some of the things that, you know, American feminists or women are grappling with now with Hillary Clinton's candidacy um, because you know, women don't often see other women get to um, these very very crucial important political positions and when they do it does present this kind of very interesting reckoning between well oh, would I have done that do I agree with that do I agree with her and do I have to agree with her to um, you know to like her or support her or and and is it possible to not support her if I'm a woman so to um, so those questions, I think I, I, I try to tackle those in the book, um, you know, with uh, with that issue of Benazir Bhutto. And of course, ultimately, I will say that it, it was a very, very deeply disturbing and kind of um, shocking and uh, devastating moment to see her assassinated uh, because you know, I very, very much wanted to believe that uh, she was strong enough to survive and to see her annihilated. It was hard not to see that in some way as symbolic of what, uh, you know, the direction of the country and the, dire- and, and the, and the sentiment of, of what should be done to women who are public women in the public sphere.
0: You've hinted that your next book will further explore your own life. Say a little more about that.
1: <laughs> well, um, you know, I hope to do that. One of the reasons I wrote... Uh, Upstairs Wife was because I felt it it was so important for me, both as a writer um, and as a person, to look back and understand, really understand the relationships and the marriages that kind of formed my mental uh, or emotional landscape growing up. Um, And I felt that if once I did that, I could understand my own choices Um, And the events that took place in my life. I was married when I was 18. I had an arranged marriage. Um, And events like that, I mean, I I, I needed to contextualize them for myself, Um, you know, because of course when you, and especially because I was so young, when that happens, you see it only as an independent event, but of course, it's not. There, there are genealogies for all decisions that we make, uh, and and I was was interested in in doing that with Upstairs Wife, so that I could kind of then look from then on and understand and and write about my own story and my history and uh, why I did the things I did um with that perspective.
0: Rafi Zakaria, thank you.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
0: Rafia Zakaria is a lawyer and a columnist for Dawn, Pakistan's largest English-language newspaper. She's also the author of the article Honor Killings, telling their stories won't end the crimes in the summer issue of World Policy Journal, and of last year's Beacon Press book The Upstairs Wife, an intimate history of Pakistan, which was the subject of a recent talking policy feature with her on the World Policy Blog. Also featured in the WPJ summer issue, Renegade Cities, you'll find articles about a black market for water in the Indian city of Chennai, about public-private collaboration for affordable urban housing, at least on paper, and about the problems with plans for a northern powerhouse in Great Britain before and after Brexit. And listen next week when our podcast will focus on the campaign for moderate reform of religion in Morocco by women. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick, Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.